Scripture this morning is taken from John, the ninth chapter, verses 39 through 41, and Romans chapter 14, verse 10. I'm reading from the New International Version. Hear the word of the Lord. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were there with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Romans chapter 14, verse 10. You then, why do you judge your brothers? Or why do you look down on your brother? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. This is God's word. He'll bless us as we read and obey it. Amen. Father, may the words of my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. We are at the conclusion of a series, a series of objections to the faith, and this week we are looking at an obstacle, some say, is second only to the problem of suffering, and it is the issue of judgment. The question could be put something like this. How can a loving God also be a God of judgment? Or, how can it be that we don't give ourselves to Christ, that we are lost and condemned? Well, let's confess at the outset, if this isn't the most difficult topic, I want to reserve that for the positive mysteries of the faith, God's triune love and the great exchange of atonement on the cross. It certainly is among the most unpleasant. But neglecting difficult doctrines often brings counterintuitive consequences. There is, it could be argued, an ecological, biblical balance to things that we disturb only at our own peril. If we avoid difficult doctrines, we may find that some of our most cherished and Important ones are damaged. God's judgment, for example, isn't the opposite of his love. It's a part of it. If we were to lose the concept of God's holiness, we would mar our understanding of God's grace and of our own inestimable value to him. To know the good news, then, is also to know the bad. So let's look briefly at the bad news, which is part of the gospel's great good news, four comments, and a story. First, God's justice is a necessary part of his goodness. Judgment is good news because evil is so evil. It is good news that God is in settled opposition to evil. This is not true of the Greek gods or the Roman gods in their own convoluted way. It's certainly not even true of the worldview of Hinduism or Buddhism, and it is certainly not true of the worldview of Islam. We have been accustomed to being comfortable with the forgiving and loving God in the Judeo-Christian West, but it is relatively a view unique to that perspective. Sin can be defined not just as breaking rules, but as making something that is not God, God. 
making something besides God our ultimate source of value and worth. And these idols inevitably capture us and enslave us spiritually and physically and emotionally, and they will take us and drive us to the very gates of hell itself. Evil must be defeated and dethroned and, yes, judged. And that's good news. One of my favorite uh, theologians, although he wrote about a century ago as the Scott P.T. Forsyth, I like uh, things that are right that don't require a lot of thought. So I tell students, if you ever see a P.T. Forsyth book on a used bookshelf, and they are there, you just don't have to think about it. Just let your elbow flop, pick it up, and pay the $2 or $3, whatever it costs. One of my favorite essays of his It's called The Holy Father. It is addressing a 19th century liberalism which said some version of God will forgive because that's what he does without cost, without payment, without penalty, without blood. And and the Holy Father, Forsyth says this, Justice is a name we give to the way God is. Goodness without justice would not be goodness. God spares us because he is good, but he could not be good if he were not just. Thirdly, hell is no more exclusive than worldviews that we think are tolerant. Let's state this objection this way. I think Christ is fine, I like him, but I can't believe that my Buddhist or Hindu or Muslim neighbor or even a good atheist won't eventually get to heaven. Or, here's a slightly different version of it, I don't think a person who doesn't believe in God, who lives a good life, is going to be sent to hell just for holding certain beliefs. Now, we don't have time to unpack those, that those questions and those statements put that way is not the way the Bible puts anything. But, for purposes, let's accept them as a starting point and say that there is almost a universal mindset, at least in the secular West, that thinks if we develop a good record and give it to God, God owes us. Whereas the biblical witness is that God has developed a great good record in Christ and given it to us and we owe him everything. So the one point of view says, if we become good people, God will reward good behavior. Good people can find God, but then the consequence of that position is bad people can't. So what becomes of us moral failures? The answer is we are excluded. You can see we can either come to God by our goodness or by his grace, but you can't have it both ways. The gospel says joyfully, it doesn't matter who you are or where you've been or what you've done. Even if your life has carried you to the very gates of hell itself, you can be welcomed and embraced fully and instantly and completely and totally by the living God. That's good news. Fourth, there is no love without wrath. 
Let's turn to Becky Pipper to develop this point. She writes, think how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. Anger is in the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. Then she quotes E.H. Gifford. Human love here offers an analogy. The more a father loves his son, or we could say the more a mother loves her son, the more he hates in him the drunkard, the liar, the traitor. And she concludes, If I, a flawed, narcissistic, sinful woman, can feel this much pain and anger over someone's conditions, how much more? A morally perfect God who made them. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer of sin, which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. Wrath is not the opposite of God's love. It is an expression of it. One of my colleagues at seminary was having trouble with his adult son, and he flew to the town in which he lived, and he decided he needed to have a come-to-Jesus moment with his son. And he sat down over a cup of coffee and said, Son, I love you, and I always will. But I don't like you very much. That's love. In verse 39 of our text, Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world. What an amazing contradiction to so many texts we think on first blush. In John three seventeen. Immediately after the famous John 3.16, the text says God did not send his Son into the world to judge the world, but in order that the world through him might be saved. John 12 says, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. But again, this morning's text for judgment, I did come into the world. Evidently, the Bible is clear. Whatever Jesus is doing, it is part of coming into the world to save it. Apparently, Jesus saving the world divides the world. It reveals opposition. So when a surgeon says, I'm going to amputate a limb, he doesn't say, I'm going to take a leg off. He says, I'm going to save your life. Jesus' saving action evidently divides the world. He comes speaking truth and doing the truth. And the ministry of Jesus, which aims to save inevitably reveals and confirms blindness. So, the biblical truth is that there is a time coming for every responsible soul in which we will stand before the judgment of a living and loving God either for eternal life or for wrath and fury. Hebrews 9.27 says, "...it is appointed unto a man once to die." And after that, the judgment. Or in surely what is one of the most beautiful expressions of the gospel anywhere, Romans 9.23, Paul writes that God's purpose for all things is to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Vessels of mercy. That's who you are. 
if you have reached out to God in Christ. No grounds for pride. We are vessels of mercy. We are receptacles of his great and good grace. We don't deserve to be Christians. We don't deserve to be chosen. We don't deserve to be called. I believe this message should be heard as humility for Christians and hope for unbelievers. That's good news. This Friday I went with John Agin from our church to San Quentin Prison. I thought to see a Shakespearean production by prisoners. Instead, I saw a production by the Shakespeare troupe of life stories, dramas written by 14 of them, two hours long just of stories of their life, and embedded in the heart of it, Craig, you can imagine, was the gospel. My suspicion is that the directors that came into work were kind of embarrassed by that, so it was kind of the, not the beginning or the end, but right at the heart, because it couldn't be ignored, story after story of the gospel. The drama said names like salt on a bleeding wound, fenced in man, the untouchables, redemption of a Faust. And you can imagine they were, of course, stories about fatherlessness and homelessness and drug addiction and failure and gangs and guns and violence and rape, but right at the heart of so many was the gospel. In a play called For My Father, John Neblett shared that he foolishly lost confidence in his father when his father shared with him this truth about life. Humility is what you need to prize. He walked out on his father, and the play was about coming to recognize that his father was right. He ended the play by saying that Jesus had taught him grace. And then in a play simply called The Testimony, written by a brother named Kimani Fandali, he went through a drama of what by any estimation is a tortured life, in juvenile hall at a young age, his mother homeless on the streets. Episodes that I won't take time to recount, but which were astonishingly amazing in their horror. But he concluded his piece this way. Really the way Steve concluded his piece, the way your Lottie Moon offering concludes, or trumpets our offering, he said at the end, all my life, now I see was done so that I might learn to love Christ wholeheartedly and fear Christ wholeheartedly and trust Christ wholeheartedly and serve Christ wholeheartedly and praise Christ wholeheartedly. And in the conclusion of that play, and only that play, there is a standing ovation almost entirely given by the prisoners in that almost packed hall. The issue for you and me this morning is not our background or our race or experience or even our accomplishments. It is whether we have or whether we will wholeheartedly reach out to Christ. All the riches of God's glory are in him. For vessels prepared for vessels of his mercy, they can be had there and nowhere else prepared for vessels of mercy who are wise enough to reach out and receive it.
Living and holy God, we are thankful that you are a God of love and holiness, a God of mercy and of justice. That means that we can truly say and know that justice will be done, that vengeance does not need to be ours. It is yours in your holiness and mercy and goodness and grace. And for that, eternity will not be time enough to sing your praise. For it is in the Savior of our soul, the Redeemer of our lives, that we pray, even Jesus Christ our Lord.